him. And we go to um, 2.50, and you can leave uh, uh, time for questions. And I won't ask you a question this time. I don't believe it. Can you hear me? Is this on? Hello? Anybody there? Is it on? Okay, great. Thank you. You know, singing that song, all we need to do is clap, and I feel like I was in my home church when I was a kid. We sang it every service, except we were clapping and singing it faster. So anyway, I hadn't heard that for years. Oh, Well, it's been great to be here so far. We're now about halfway through, I guess. And uh, I'm going to take off from where I left off so we can cover some things. I, I know then dealing with the questions of interpretation, some of that was a little heady, sort of had to work through it. But actually, if you will take the time to do it, it really makes a difference in the way you think. And it will be helpful to you. I want to take some time talking about the questions of literal versus allegorical interpretation, which is a philosophical view of how you view the text over against literary versus literal and figurative, which are simply the ways in which you deal with with language itself. There really is a difference between literal between those two ideas. So I'm going to take some time to run through, first of all, are we on? Oh, I guess I need to do this, don't I? Okay, good. Is, it, is this working? Okay. Between literal and allegorical interpretation, you know, it really helps if you put the stuff in. Where's the rest of that? Did I give that to you? Technology. All right. <laughs> it's not one to take my thing. Let's see. See if this works. Okay, we're good. Okay, uh, contrast between literal and allegorical interpretation. I'm just going to run through this, and then I'm going to take some time to give you a presentation I did at pre-trib, which uh, was well-received, and I think it puts some perspective on the question of how you use the Old Testament from the New. Uh, In what way does there a continuity between the Testaments? Uh, allegorical interpretation, a verse can have more than one sense or meaning, which would obviously fall in the face of what I just got through saying earlier, that a, a given text can only mean one thing. There's not multiple uh, meanings in any given passage in the Bible. Uh, and even God and the human author mean the same thing, though I'm willing to grant that in the mind of God there may be more components to that meaning than the human author understands. But that's another question we could talk about later. Literal interpretation, Scripture has only one sense or meaning, the grammatical, historical, cultural interpretation. Under allegorical, interpretation becomes subjective and speculative. And you can see how that is. Every single person uh, interpreting a particular text of Scripture, if they're working allegorical, can have a totally different meaning. I mean, you can have 50 different understandings of the text. Uh, under an allegorical approach, but from a literal, grammatical, historical, very difficult to do that. Uh, No speculation, subjectivity, interpretation is grounded in objective fact. Allegorical, no control, any meaning is valid as another. That's not true in reference to the literal. Uh, Allegorical, no concern with history or factual data. Uh, You'd be amused by reading some of Augustine's. Now, Augustine in other areas did pretty well. Uh, there's a lot of debate on St. Augustine and so forth. But uh, the fact is, uh, when he got to some of his allegorical interpretation, he was really out there. He's on LSD or something. I don't know. 
uh, it was really amazing the things he came up with. Like the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have basically, uh, you have Jesus being the Good Samaritan and, and you have Adam going down there and falling into sin and receiving the Spirit and going to Paul who was the gatekeeper at the end and taking people in and on and on and on. He just had a, a vivid imagination. Everything in the text meant something else than what the text was talking about. But I guess it was good preaching material. Now, uh, maintains a respect and concern for both history and fact. Uh, allegorical, again, leaving literal meaning results in making Scripture say something that is not there. Literal maintains a literal meaning. Now, I want to say something purely from an ethical standpoint. I think it is absolutely wrong to take somebody's book and to treat it with such uh, methodology and, and mischief. Uh, if you took some book of mine and tried to start saying that I meant this and this and this and this and this and I didn't, I would take offense at it. And I think God takes offense at taking his word and manipulating it that way. I think we need to stick with what God's saying in the text through a valid means of interpretation that we've talked about. Uh, there is a superiority of literal over allegorical. You operate under, uh, in reference to language, in figurative language, for example, you have connotative over against denotative, which is literal. Literal interpretation, for example, is the explicit assertions of the word, where figurative language uh, speaks to uh, not the specific intention of, of the text in the same way. In other words, you can say uh, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and you really know that Jesus isn't a lion, right? Everybody knows that? Uh, unless you've been seeing a lot of Aslan. So uh, other than that, you know all up, you know up front that it doesn't mean that. It means something in which you're, you're using some kind of figure to state a, a truth of, of majesty or something. But when you start moving into some of this other stuff, it just you lose control of where you are. Uh, superiority of literal over allegorical is consistent with and sustained by literal fulfillment of prophecy. You know, one thing I think is very interesting, and that is every single prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament is fulfilled in a literal sense in the New Testament. I mean, you don't have any of this, this nonsense. I mean, you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not of Nazareth, not near Nazareth in, in, in the Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Mentions a name, mentions a location specifically. Uh, that's pretty, pretty detailed. Uh, talks about him being born of a virgin. It's very hard to duplicate that problem. You know, you, you have these things that are detailed and specific in the, in the fulfillment of prophecy. And yet, uh, somehow, uh, people look at, at in, in the history of the church, you know, we have this. People look at the, the historical reality of Christ's birth and death and resurrection and so forth, and they take it and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they come to the second coming of Christ and go bonkers. You know, they move into allegory. And they say, well, it's not understandable. And so forth and so on. Well, I don't think everything is understandable, that's for sure. Uh, there are things that are difficult sometimes to understand. But so much more than what they think is understandable. And, uh, and it will be fulfilled literally. Recognizing there are figures of speech, just like Jesus, Right? Uh, it grounds interpretation in fact. Allegorization does not, and I think that's a problem. 
Now, I want to say one other thing. By the way, you notice I'm talking fast because I'm trying to get to the point that I, I need to give this the presentation I really need to get into. When the Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense lest it be nonsense. You've heard of that, right? And I really believe that a lot of things simply are nonsense because the Scripture made perfectly good sense. They just didn't like it. So here we go. Spiritualizing Scripture. This view is contrary to the normal sense of words, and the meaning only resides in the mind of the interpreter, not the text itself. A lot of people look at Scripture and they say, well, I know it says that, but we need to find some deeper meaning, some more important meaning, something that relies, relates more to my life or something. In other words, they don't like the literal interpretation because it doesn't give them the, the, uh, the push. It doesn't give them some kind of a, of a, what would it be if you were into buzz or something, you know. Uh, it, it somehow doesn't ring for them. Well, Scripture, a lot of stuff is it doesn't just sort of make me want to run up and down the, the floor, you know. But it, I'm dealing with truth. And there are places in Scripture I would really like to see some people spiritualize, and I'm not going to go into them. But the point of it is I don't know what they would come up with. I had a guy in, in, uh, in the South Pacific one time, and he was doing a doctoral work under me, and he was also doing some teaching where I was teaching too. And uh, he was doing his dissertation, and I said, I won't, do your, I won't work with you on your dissertation. And he said, why not? And we had a long talk about it. Because he said, every text, every passage in the Scripture has to talk about Jesus, and you need to come up with how that passage deals with Jesus. And I said, I agree that there's a lot of Christology in the Bible, you know, theology. I agree that the Scripture is Christocentric in the sense that it leads toward Christ, but not every verse of the Bible, matter of fact, a lot don't talk about Jesus at all. And it's totally missing what Scripture is all about. Scripture is a revelation of God about himself and his plans in the world. And not every single passage has to say something about Jesus, but that's what he required in his classes. Students always had to find Jesus in the text they dealt with. And that's nonsensical interpretation. Very, very forced. A lot of people have to spiritualize everything. They just don't feel good. I'm going to give you a, an interpretation of Hebrews in just a, uh, uh, tomorrow uh, that I'm, I'm curious to get your response to uh, in reference to Abraham looking for a city, and we'll talk about that. I think the reason for spiritualization comes about somewhat from the talk that I heard yesterday uh, about the concept of Germ German uh, views of... I, I think they were moved a lot... Bultmann, I know, was sort of very influenced by Gnostic thought. And they just didn't feel that that the historical studies of, of the Old Testament, they didn't feel like the, the movement of God in history was significant enough. It just didn't get them where they were. They needed something more ethereal, something more spiritual, something more Gnostic-like. And I think that they just uh, can't stand that you have actually a book that talks about historical realities. It just didn't seem spiritual. So... Um, I think ancient Greek philosophy brought that in, and I think the church picked up a lot of it too, as I say here. This Gnostic view is what gave rise to a moral perspective leading to asceticism, libertinism, to a view of the physical body which denied the true nature of the incarnated Jesus. A lot of the early church picked that up. And then I mentioned here the same became true in people like Bultmann and much liberal theology. It discounts the material reality of God's world. In other words, they 
See, I have a very, very down-to-earth view of a lot of things eschatologically. I really believe the new heavens and new earth are real places where people really walk and talk, possibly eat. I don't know. But I know that it's going to be a physical world uh, after the resurrected body makes that available. And I'm, I'm not looking to float in clouds somewhere. I just don't see it. And so I think a lot of people, I, almost all the references I have people talking to me about heaven are talking about the new heavens and new earth, not some kind of place that we go sort of float until, that, until then. So we, we need to get an understanding that the Bible focuses upon the resurrection and what is to come after that. So uh, just a few thoughts on those areas. Now I'm going to stop this. I just want to barely touch on some things here and move in then on the uh, issue of the hermeneutics of historical premillennialism. So let me just start there. All right. Now, you can read this along with me. How the Old and New Testaments relate to one another is one of the central issues in biblical hermeneutics. Closely related to this topic is a relationship between the nation of Israel and the universal church. How one wades through these issues of continuity and our discontinuity is normally the point of departure between the various camps of covenant theology and dispensationalism and other views even that are dispensational between progressive and, and traditional. While these issues may reflect the point of departure, the root of the distinction goes back to the underlying presuppositions and beliefs about hermeneutics. That is to say, what one believes about the relationship of a text to its meaning and how a reader accesses that meaning has far-reaching impact. All other areas of theology and biblical understanding are a result of the reader's hermeneutical presuppositions and practices. Premillennialism is an eschatological view that finds itself on both sides of the covenant theology dispensational divide. As a result of a consistent method of interpretation, all who would subscribe to dispensationalism would be premillennial in their eschatology, right? This is not true, however, for covenant theology. Within this camp, premillennialists can be found alongside amillennialists and postmillennialists. Among dispensationalists, most would also be pre-tribulationists. That is, they would look forward to the coming rapture of the church prior to the seven-year time of the great tribulation preceding the return of Christ. Most covenant premillennialists would be post-tribulationists. They are looking forward to the coming rapture of the church at the end of the great tribulation and coinciding with the return of Christ. This post-tribulational view is often called historic premillennialism or classic premillennialism. Though both views are premillennial and both eschatologies are within the scope of Orthodox Christianity, they arise from distinct interpretive views and practices. At the core of these issues is the interpretive relationship between the Testaments. Both views claim to employ a literal interpretation. Everybody does it literally, you know, they say, until you look at what they do and then you say, hmm. And interpreters in both premillennial camps work hard at understanding the historical grammatical issues inherent in rightly understanding the scriptures. But the interpreters look at the timeline of progressive revelation from different ends. Here it is, from different ends. For the dispensational pre-tribulational premillennialists, that's a mouthful, the timeline is viewed from creation forward. That is, we have a linear path moving to an end, right? Beginning to end. As God unfolds his progressive revelation along 
Each text is understood in light of what has been previously revealed and what it in turn adds to the scriptures. In other words, the New Testament would be understood in light of the Old Testament. Later revelation is to be understood through the lens of earlier revelation and not vice versa. That is, I don't read back into the Old Testament. I read from it. For the classic or historic premillennialist, the timeline is viewed from the present backward. Therefore, each text is to be understood in the light of the whole of Scripture. The Old Testament then must be interpreted not only within its own context, but must also be recast, changed as it were, in light of New Testament revelation. Thus, from this perspective, earlier revelation must be reinterpreted and re-understood in light of later revelation. In this paper, I will summarize briefly both interpretive viewpoints and present a test passage as a demonstration. Moreover, I will argue throughout that the dispensational hermeneutic is more consistent with the original intended meaning and that it should therefore be normative for the church. Charles Ryrie's three essential elements to dispensational theology provide a solid summary of the issues that set teaching apart. To Ryrie, what makes dispensational theology distinct is, one, clear distinction between Israel and the church. Consistent literal interpretation of scriptures, number two, and last of all, glory of God as a purpose of history. These three issues are not independent from one another, but rather build upon each other. Literal interpretation, consistently and diligently applied, will reveal a distinction in God's plans and purposes for the nation of Israel and his church. This distinction will in turn shape the eschatological views of the interpreter as he seeks to understand how God will fulfill his purpose of self-glorification as he brings history to a close. This hermeneutic is key and will be discussed more later. Dispensational teaching believes God will glorify himself through the distinct purposes he has for Israel and the church by rapturing the church prior to the great tribulation in which Israel again becomes the focus of God's dealings with the world. Unannounced, Jesus Christ will come in the clouds to call his church out of the world this event will begin a seven-year period in which the world will face tremendous trouble and persecution in nearly every imaginable category. The Antichrist will unite the world under his leadership and will, as his name suggests, lead them away from the worship of the true and living God. The second coming of Christ will mark the end of this seven-year terror as he defeats the Antichrist, binds Satan, and initiates a thousand-year kingdom under his rule which will then lead into the eternal state and the new creation of the new heavens and new earth. Historic premillennialism is so called because it is claimed. It reflects the kind of premillennialism espoused by the early church fathers and writers. Similarly to dispensational teaching, historic premillennialism looks forward to a future kingdom in which Christ will literally, physically reign on the earth. Some historic premillennialists, such as Ladd, view the millennium as a specific, literal, thousand-year period. Others believe the kingdom will be physical and literal, but the thousand years represented may simply be figurative for a very long time. And thus, at that point, we leave literal interpretation. 
for historic premillennialism, the end of this age and the return of Christ will be marked by the rapture of the church in which we will meet Christ in the clouds as he returns to establish his millennial kingdom. We just go out to meet him and come back. Thus, a rapture and the return of Christ are contemporaneous. Before this can occur, historic premillennialism teaches that certain events must first occur before Christ returns. One, the gospel must be proclaimed in all the nations. Israel will be, recon- will be converted. There will be a great apostasy. The great tribulation will occur. The Antichrist or man of sin will be revealed. Though the timing of the rapture and tribulation is different, there are some clear similarities to dispensational eschatology. Most prominent among them is the physical millennial kingdom, that is for most. However, there are also specific and important differences, and there is a clean break between the two eschatological views in key areas. Historic premillennialism finds its home among the various expressions of covenant theology. By the way, just as an aside, I don't know if you've ever studied covenant theology, but I have never understood why they develop, and they're so excited about three constructed theological covenants and ignore all the biblical covenants. I just don't know why. We could call ourselves covenant theologians, really. We're very much into covenant. But anyway, um, I lost my place, but somewhere here. Because of it, a view of covenant theology teaches that the church and not the nation of Israel is at center stage as God's mediatorial people during these eschatological times. Both dispensational and historic premillennialism views are eagerly looking forward to Christ's return. For the dispensationalist, the millennial reign of Christ will be mediated through the nation of Israel as the Lord sits on Davidic throne, David's throne in Jerusalem to exercise his rule. However, for the historic premillennialist, it is not the nation of Israel at center stage during the millennium, but the church. The, nat- the nature of the millennial kingdom takes a significantly different and distinctively covenant shape under this view. In his portions of The Meaning of the Millennium, Ladd strenuously argues against the Jewishness of the millennial kingdom. It's amazing. Because Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, there can be no purpose to a literal rebuilt king- uh, temple. Because Christ inaugurated his kingdom in the hearts of men during his ministry, and particularly in his resurrection, there can be no validity to an earthly rule from a physical throne and city. Seems like we're losing everything. I know why you don't want a thousand years. There's nothing to do. <laughs> because God's purposes for the Old Testament nation of Israel are complicated, the millennial kingdom must be mediated through the church and not through Israel under this viewpoint. Now, like dispensationalists, historic premillennialists also practice historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutics. Unfortunately, however, its proponents also practice and argue for a spiritualized hermeneutic at times. Ladd defends this practice by saying, quote, The fact is that the New Testament frequently interprets Old Testament prophecies in a way not suggested by the Old Testament context. Well, we could discuss that hermeneutically if he wanted to. I think the prophets, I think the apostles did a good job of interpreting the Old Testament literally. But anyway, he continues, the Old Testament is reinterpreted in light of the Christ event. Thus, the significance of the matter in historic premillennialism is not the absence of, but rather in the inconsistency of, 
applying the literal hermeneutic. This is particularly evident in Michael Lawrence's book, Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church. His first chapter is entitled, Exegetical Tools, Grammatical Historical Method. That sounds promising. As one might expect from a chapter with this title, there is much to commend as he writes of working carefully through the details of the text and context to arrive at the author's intended meaning. For example, he writes that, quote, words which placed in sentences and paragraphs convey meaning, and not just any meaning. They convey the meaning of the author. I want you to listen to these terms carefully. The meaning of the author who constructed the sentence and the paragraph as a reflection of his authorial intent. This guy has been reading uh, somebody I know. <laughs> as readers of words, and particularly as readers of God's word, our obligation and privilege is to read in such a way as to recover and understand the meaning the author wanted to convey or to communicate. He continues, quote, The basic method of exegesis that we use to determine an author's original intent has come to be known as a grammatical historical method. Discerning the meaning of the text in this way immediately plunges us into an exploration and study of the grammar and syntax and literary and historical context of the words we're reading. Thus the phrase grammatical historical method. Man, I tell you, this guy is right on. Thus far in Lawrence's description and prescription, there is little against which to argue. He could come to this meeting, I guess. He is correct to say that the author's intended meaning is present in the text itself and that that meaning is accessed and understood by the reader through a careful grammatical historical study. These are points with which dispensationalists would heartily endorse and promote. Later in the same chapter, though, he seemingly reverses course. This is the hermeneutical inconsistency for which historic premillennialism is known, and not just them, Ah Mills and others. In discussing the genre of prophecy, he writes, quote, In the case of prophecy, the shape of the story of the Bible as a whole is crucial. We need to remember that revelation is progressive, and in the revelation of Jesus Christ, we've been given both the main point and the end of the story. This means that we have an advantage over Old Testament readers. We work from the story of the whole Bible back to the prophecy, not the other way around. Therefore, the New Testament determines the ultimate meaning of Old Testament prophecy and not the other way around. Remember the difference between moving forward and moving back. His last sentence in this quote is particularly telling. For Lawrence, it would seem the genre of prophecy requires special treatment in which the grammatical historical method is no longer relevant or useful. It is not the text itself which carries the authorial meaning, as he has earlier explained. Rather, a New Testament text studied grammatically, historically, and literally has a meaning which carries back to Old Testament prophecies and fundamentally changes the meanings of the words and the sentences on the page. In other words, the meaning of the first text is not found within its own words and content, in context, but instead is found in a second text. He provides example of Isaiah 11's discussion of the reign of the branch of Jesse and says, In piling up these images, many of which are poetic, we need to recognize that the prophet is making a theological point and not necessarily a literal historical prediction. Really? Hmm. I learned that wrong. It is in, it is, it, it, if this is the case, that uh, should be an if, if this is the case, the question must be asked as to the... By the way, because I interpret Scripture the way I do, and literature, I knew that, that it didn't fit. <laughs> See, that's I, it's, proof is in the pudding, right? If this is the case, 
I'm really serious with you. The question must be asked as to the ultimate purpose of the words on the Old Testament pages. If their meaning and significance is found only in text written hundreds of years later and in different historical contexts, what inherent value do they really have? By arguing for this inconsistent hermeneutic, historic premillennialism is left with the untenable result of having a God who has said what he does not mean and has meant what he has not said. You catch what I... Read that again. That's a good phrase. I wish I'd written it. No. (laughs) No. By arguing for this inconsistent hermeneutic, historic preliminism is left with the untenable result of having a God who has said, if we consider it inspired, has said what he does not mean. Because the author doesn't have the meaning. It's on the New Testament hundreds of years later. And has meant what he hasn't said yet. That's a problem to me. Foundational to the dispensational system, on the other hand, is consistency in employing a literal hermeneutic when studying the scriptures for all texts, genres, and literary types. The concept of literal interpretation is frequently misunderstood by its critics, however. The practice is a literal interpretation is not to read a figure of speech or poetic description literally. That's why I want to take just a moment on the other stuff meaning in a wooden or simplistic fashion. Instead, it means to seek to understand a text according to its literary genre, taking into account figures of speech, etc. It is to view the books of the Bible from the standpoint of normal language communication, whereby the author or author, you know, God authors, human author, communicated a meaning which can be shared through the textual medium of Scripture. Because of this, the goal of a historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutic is to discern the intention of the human author by examining what the author affirms in the historical context of his writing and and to correlate all the material related to a topic in a compressive manner. Therefore, a literal hermeneutic is not a wooden or simplistic hermeneutic, but one that seeks the plain meaning of a text as it would and should be understood in the normal usage of language. I have no problems with symbols and, fim- uh, and figures. It's all the way through the Old Testament and other forms of literature. And we don't just, you know, it's just, it's just not needed. You can find other ways to deal with this. The nature of language is such that the literal or plain meaning of any communication is necessary for real communication to happen. To argue against this hermeneutic is a failed proposition before it has even begun. In making the argument against a plain reading of a text, the one arguing assumes his point will be read and understood as he intended. You catch that? That is to say, he must assume his reader will employ a literal hermeneutic in order to understand and agree with his words arguing against a literal understanding of a text. See, that's a postmodernistic problem. It's a conundrum that you can't solve. The dispensationalist keeps historical, grammatical, literary, and linguistic factors in mind and seeks to interpret the text before him with the most natural reading it will allow. This is especially true in the case of prophetic works such as that in focus here. Those prophecies which have already been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally. This being the case, why would a person look for future fulfillment of prophecy to be fulfilled another way. 
the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Christ, his birth, his, his rearing, his ministry, his death, his resurrection were all fulfilled literally. This argues strongly for the literal method. For the text to have meaningful or real value, our interpretation of the text must follow God's progressive revelation. The revelation of the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. Therefore, we must seek to understand the Old Testament on its own terms in order to then properly understand the New Testament. The dispensationalist, valuing the progressive revelation of God throughout history, recognizes that the true literal interpretation of Scripture requires each new revelatory writing to provide the foundation upon which future revelation is to be interpreted. One thing is building on another thing, which is building on another thing all the way to the climax. Okay? Therefore, the New Testament must be interpreted in light of prior revelation, that is, the Old Testament. The historic premillennialist, on the other hand, argues through progressive revelation that the teaching of the New Testament, being more explicit and more complete, must be read back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament, therefore, is to be reinterpreted in light of New Testament revelation. Ladd explains, quote, Dispensationalism forms its eschatology by a literal interpretation of the Old Testament and then fits the New Testament into it. A non-dispensational eschatology forms its theology from the explicit teaching of the New Testament, end quote. He continues by explaining that the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel are fulfilled instead in the church. And critiquing the dispensationalist view, historicist premillennialist James Hamilton offers the following illustration in support of his biblical theological hermeneutic. Quote, Such an approach seems analogous to a botanist examining an acorn to predict what will sprout from the seed. Rather than trying to trans transcend our ultimate philosophical and theological conclusions, we should use them to help us understand with constant readiness to submit them to the searchlight of Scripture, end quote. Thus to Hamilton, the dispensationalist is reading the Old Testament in a way that imagines an acorn might grow into a potato. This, of course, is a ridiculous accusation. Wherever literal interpretation leads the exegete, if it leads, it leads him... If it leads him into contradiction with Scripture, he is doing it wrong. While Hamilton's analogy falls short on a number of counts, it seems strange to this writer that the author who fails to see the distinction between Israel and the church would accuse another view of such an absurdity. It is precisely because dispensationalism interprets Scripture with consistent literalism that it can demonstrate the acorn in the Old Testament will grow into the mighty oak of Jesus Christ who will fulfill his purposes for both Israel and the church. I think that's a far better analogy. The confusion by Hamilton of the two entities results precisely in the error of which he would accuse the dispensationalist. What about then the New Covenant as an example? As Lawrence has demonstrated above, it is clear that the historic premillennialist does in fact practice a historical, grammatical, literal method of interpretation. The problem is that this exegetical method is set aside when studying much of the Old Testament and particularly when studying prophecy. The selective hermeneutic means he is both premillennial from applying a literal hermeneutic at times and covenant from applying a spiritualized hermeneutic at times. 
This inconsistency in method is particularly demonstrable in those prophetic passages that refer to the nation of Israel, such as Jeremiah's famous New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, 33, 31-34. For the dispensationalists, the use of the terms Israel and Judah indicates that the prophecy intended to be fulfilled by and for the nation of Israel. I mean, when I read that, it's sort of natural. This would be the natural, normal, and plain reading of the, of the terms within their context. For the historical, uh, historic premillennialists, though, the text requires no such thing because the New Testament reinterprets the Old in their view. This passage and others are easily explained away as being spiritually fulfilled in the church rather than finding a literal fulfillment in the nation of Israel. So when you see Israel and Judah, think church. In his chapter in the meaning of the millennium, Lad rightly introduces this new covenant passage. Quote, In Jeremiah 31, the prophet foresees a day when God will make a new covenant with rebellious Israel. End quote. He continues with a very subtle shift in his reference. Quote, This new covenant will be characterized by a new work of God in the hearts of his people. End quote. Both of these are true statements which with any dispensationist could possibly agree. However, Ladd has made a change in his second sentence from Israel to his people. Very slight move there how he does that. That is, this is not just for literary effect. He explains this change as he moves to Hebrews 8 where the new covenant is described with Christ as mediator. As he expounds on the new covenant from this chapter, he says, quote, It seems impossible to avoid the conclusion that this quotation refers to the new covenant with the people of God, the Christian church. The new covenant which has been made possible because of the sacrifice of Christ. End quote. He has illustrated what Lawrence later described, the New Testament ta text recasting the meaning of Old Testament prophecy. Consistent with historic premillennialism's inconsistent hermeneutic, excuse, uh, hermeneutical approach, Ladd has reinterpreted the Old Testament passage to mean that which it does not say. The verses in question, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, are clearly about the nation of Israel. Israel is mentioned specifically by name two times in these four verses. Judah once. Moreover, Jeremiah speaks of Yahweh having led this people to whom he refers out of the land of Egypt. Seems historical in nature. There can be no other reference here than the literal, physical, historical, sociopolitical nation of Israel. I mean, it's just not there. Not once in his discussion does Ladd dispute what the text says. Rather, he looks to the New Testament to reinterpret. That is, in other words, he doesn't find it necessary to try to come to grips with the Old Testament text. He just says, let's forget all of that and go to the New Testament. Uh, rather, he looks to the New Testament to reinterpret, that is, fundamentally alter the meaning of the Old Testament text. He brings the New Testament to bear on the Old Testament in such a way that he disputes what is meant by what is said and changes the clear natural meaning. I mean, he just ignores it. He disputes what is meant by what is said and changes the clear natural reading of the text to a spiritualized interpretation. With the principle of reinterpreting the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, Ladd announces that Israel and Judah in Jeremiah 31 in fact now means church. Grudem concurs... The new covenant in Christ fulfills the promises made in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, as quoted in Hebrews 8. The meaning ascribed by Lad to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is not that of a fulfilled prophecy 
or any kind of literal interpretation. The text not explained by historic parallelism, but rather is explained away in favor of a meaning that is both less than and different from what the Lord revealed through his prophet. You ever thought of somebody putting words in your mouth? You don't like that, do you? That's what they're doing. They're putting words in God's mouth here. It's an amazing thing. Ladd would argue that the Old Testament text must be reinterpreted through the lenses of Hebrews 8 and other New Testament passages. But his reinterpretation falls far short of exegeting what the text actually says. Part of the reason the New Testament is misunderstood by historic premillennialists is that they fail to properly account for the context in which Jeremiah originally prophesied. Ignoring the context as well as the details of the prophecy opens up an entire ram of spiritualized interpretation that misses the authorial intent. By the way, you don't need to be in this viewpoint, you don't need to be an Old Testament scholar or even read Hebrew because it doesn't make any difference. Read your New Testament, read some Greek, read your English translation, you got it made. Because what you don't have to deal with the nitty-gritty issues and analysis that is required in serious study. That's one thing I see out of this. Um, a significant feature of the literal hermeneutic of dispensationalists is to fully account for the context of a passage. Context in this usage means much more than its common misuse as merely the few verses prior and subsequent to the passage in view. Remember, I went through context. You've got a number of levels of context. It means that all elements of the historical, theological, social, literary, and linguistic elements must be brought to bear on the final exegesis of the passage. But were you to do this in his position, you shouldn't really spend your time on that stuff because after you finish and try to figure out what the author meant, you know already it didn't mean it. You know what I'm saying? You spend 50 hours working through passages and come to the end say, man, I think I understand what he said now and what he, what he was getting at. And then you think, oh, but that's not what it means. And again, you go to the New, New Testament. I don't know. A significant feature of the literary, literal interpretation, excuse me, hermeneutic, of dispensationalism is to fully account for the context of a passage. Context in this usage means much more than its common misuse. I've already read that. Did I have that twice? Okay, forget that. As relates to an understanding of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the exegete must see the new covenant in context with the other biblical covenants. The covenant theologian would attempt to ground the new covenant within the covenants of redemption, work, and grace. You're familiar with those? But this would be to put the cart before the horse. The three covenants of covenant theology are not, as been clearly argued elsewhere, found by carefully exegeting scriptural texts. Find them. Be glad to deal with them. Rather, they are constructs imposed upon the text by inference and assumption. And I have, you know, I, I basically teach theology, systematics. And I've spent a lot of time with this. And I agree there are components like is Jesus saves, redemption, people did works, you know. And, you know, that's not a lot to go on. The biblical covenants are detailed, specific, and are repeated again and again and again 
right on its face. Under covenant theology, you've got to really work hard to come to them because you're constructing them out of a lot of air. Anyway, to put the new covenant in context with other biblical covenants is to look at the covenants which are specifically and explicitly addressed and explained in the biblical text. The first covenant found would be the Adamic covenant found in Genesis 3. And I'll give Robbie Dean the, uh, the credit for that one. He had a doctoral course with me in which he argued that. Remember that? I do. 40 years ago, 30 years ago. As God responds to the sin of Adam and Eve, he promises that her seed would one day crush the head of the serpent. This is commonly understood as being a reference to the coming of Christ centuries later. What happened? Did you pay your bill? I hate to be interrupted. Where does that go? Okay, here we go. Recovered file. That's not it. You're going to have to help me find out where I was, guys. It's earlier than this. That's where it was, right? Okay, boy. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, Okay, good. The next covenant God makes with humanity is found in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. This covenant, signified by the rainbow in the clouds, contains God's promise to Noah and his family to never again flood the entire earth in judgment. It also contains a requirement for capital punishment for murderers. Neither the Adamic nor Noahic covenants have any requirement upon mankind to get God to fulfill his promises. Rather, they are unconditional or unilateral covenants in which God promises what he will or will not do, irrespective of Adam's or Noah's obedience. This pattern of unilateral covenants continues with God's covenant with Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Notice that all these are unilateral, all unconditional. This same covenant is further developed with Abram in Genesis 15, with Abraham in Genesis 17. In this covenant, God has unconditionally elected Abraham to be the progenitor of the one who would ultimately fulfill the prior covenants with Adam, Noah, (laughs) Abraham in addition to the subsequent covenants with Moses and David. God's covenant with Abraham is foundational for understanding not just the rest of the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. As the Old Testament moves toward the incarnation of Christ and his death and resurrection, so the New Testament interprets the first coming of Christ as it continues to move God's story along toward the rapture, millennium, and ultimately the eternal state. Therefore, the election of Abraham's line to be the family through whom Christ would come forms the foundation for all covenants to come. Again, I'm emphasizing 
the new the dispensational view in contrast is moving linear toward the new heavens and new earth in God's final plans. It also is building on one another all the way to the end. That's that's the the beauty of it and also the genius of it. In the Abrahamic covenant, there are three primary promises which form the core of God's covenant with Abraham and which will be fulfilled or filled in later history promises of land, seed, and blessing. As God calls Abram out of Ur, he calls him, quote, to the land I will show you, end quote. Later in chapter 15, he delineates this land for him as extending from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kizazites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim. I usually joke on this one, but I'll keep moving. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gerizites, and the Jebusites. <clears throat> now, moreover, this land is promised not just to Abram, but also to his descendants as a permanent inheritance. And I will give to you, he says, and your offspring after you, the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Walbert summarizes, quote, The promise of possession of the land by the seed of Abraham is a prominent feature of the covenant. And the way the promise is given enhances its significance. The promise, as given, emphasizes that, one, it is gracious in its principle, two, the land is an inheritance of the seed, three, the title is given forever, four, the land is to be possessed forever, five, the land promised includes specific territory defined by boundaries. It is difficult to imagine how God could have made it clearer that the covenant was sure of its literal fulfillment. I mean, this isn't the reading of fiction. The promises of God to Abram are made that much more wonderful by the fact that God was making promises to the descendants of an elderly couple who had no children. Repeatedly, God promises the land, national greatness, and abundance of a number to the descendants of Abraham. They will be as uncountable as the stars and will not die out. These promises are all made to the literal, physical descendants of Abraham. Both Eliezer of Damascus and Ishmael are excluded from being the direct inheritors of the blessing by virtue of not being the physical and literal offspring of Abraham and Sarah. They are blessed by God by virtue of their connection to Abraham, but because they are not the children of promise, they cannot, according to God, be the fulfillment of this promise. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promises of land and seed relate specifically to the physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Here God is promising to bring blessing to the Gentiles through Abraham's line. It is anticipated that the seed should be a channel of this blessing. In particular, this is fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. Therefore, a literal interpretation of God's promises to Abraham will look for fulfillment that includes literal, physical descendants of Abraham and Sarah through the line of Isaac possessing and enjoying the land delineated above. Moreover, there will be a blessing for the earth through them. The Mosaic Covenant provides a conditional means by which the inaugurated blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant are to be enjoyed. Look at that word and you can underline it. Are to be enjoyed by the physical descendants of Abraham in the physical land of promise. The core of the covenant is found in Exodus 34, 10 through 28, although it's developed throughout the remainder of the Pentateuch. The Mosaic Covenant provides the condition... Oh, that's the... 
Here, God promises to establish a nation of Israel in the land promised to Abraham by driving out the current inhabitants. However, the success of this is predicted, predicated upon the obedience of the people to avoid aligning themselves with those people. Unlike the previous covenants, there is a strong conditional element to the Mosaic covenant. Should the nation of Israel fail to obey the requirements, they will no longer enjoy, underline, the possession of the promised land. This is explicitly described in Deuteronomy 29:28. Yahweh uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. However, the new covenant is foreshadowed here as their repentance will once again bring them back to the land and they will be dedicated to the Lord. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The possession of the land and the committed hearts of the nation are primary features of the new covenant as promised by Jeremiah. The Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7, 4 through 17 is a further development of the seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise that the seed of Abraham will be a great nation is further specified here as a descendant from David who will reign over the physical descendants of Abraham. Though not mentioned in the four verses discussed below, it should be pointed out that this seed of David is mentioned in the near context and in the same book section in Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Now, with the background of prior covenants, and particularly the Abraham and Davidic covenants, the new covenant can be properly seen as making provision for their ultimate fulfillment. You catch that? The covenants are building on each other. Therefore, we should expect to see references to literal physical descendants as well as to literal physical geography alongside blessing for all nations. Not only that, we should expect their meaning and fulfillment to also be met in literal and physical ways. Jeremiah 30 through 33 is quickly seen to be a unit by the careful reader and is often called the book of comfort. References to the physical descendants of Abraham and the socio-political nations of Israel and Judah could not be made more plain. Right from the beginning of this prophecy, it was written, quote, For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says Yahweh, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. I mean, history is flowing here, and to just simply bifurcate it, just break it off and say, well, this is something different, is to ignore the whole context of the, t- of the passages. Over the next four chapters, God mentions Israel and or Judah specifically by name more than 20 times. Jacob, King David, Rachel, Zion, and Ephraim are also mentioned. Moreover, there are specific geographical references throughout these four chapters. To see anything here other than prophecy specifically relating to the physical nation of Israel and the physical descendants of Abraham is to ignore the context and details and to superimpose artificial meaning divorced from the text itself. The covenant itself is to be in contrast with the Mosaic covenant. Unlike the Mosaic covenant, however, this will be unilateral and unconditional. 
Every one of the covenants except the Mosaic is unconditional and unilateral. It is not predicated upon the obedience of Abraham's descendants, but upon the faithfulness of God, he says specifically. And when it is fulfilled, there will be full forgiveness and relationship for the people. Once again, God will lead the nation of Israel into the land they were promised. The promises to Abraham in which his descendants would enjoy and possess forever the land, promise will find their fulfillment in the new covenant. The fulfillment to these promises is still future and will be honored in the millennial kingdom. I mean, when I worked through this stuff, I thought, my goodness, how blind do you have to be? I mean, you have to have something just over your eyes intellectually there. Uh, I'm just amazed by the, just the plethora of materials that still kept coming historically. And I'm thinking, okay, so Israel has the covenant here, the new covenant. It's not that the church is replaced because, the, excuse me, that Israel is replaced because the church has the covenant, but it's that Israel has the covenant and the church benefits in it. And that's exactly what... Galatians 3 is talking about it, which we don't go into now. The New Testament application of the New Covenant to the church is a debated topic within dispensationalism. Quote, either Christ mediates the actual New Covenant of Jeremiah 31 to believers, or he mediates the blessings of the New Covenant to church believers today. This demonstrates that even when using a consistently literal hermeneutic, there is room for variation in understanding, and a healthy debate is proper and helpful for understanding the text better. Where there is consensus in dispensational theology is in the recognition that the prophet means Israel when he refers to Israel. <laughs> in Jeremiah 31. Key to applying literal hermeneutics to the Old Testament is understanding that the Scripture will never be truly and finally fulfilled with less than what was said or by different events than are foretold. Remember my whole point in the Hirschian discussion? The fact is you, could, you can have things that are added and become part of the dynamic, but you cannot have a contradiction, a contrary view that obliterates one view to impose another. You can have one come out of the other, but you cannot have them in contradiction to each other. And that's the problem we're seeing going on here. So, key to applying literal hermeneutics is understanding the Scripture will never be fully in, fulfilled with less than what was said or by different events that are foretold. If Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant includes the nations of Israel being gathered back into her land, then the final fulfillment must include a literal Israel back in the literal land of promise. When the eschatological new covenant is realized, it will have some type of exodus motif or regathering into the land. The direct addresses who are Israel and Judah, must be regathered into the promised land. Gonzalez argues convincingly that the writer of Hebrews is not stating that the new covenant has been completely fulfilled and therefore must be reinterpreted. Rather, rather than writing of a fulfillment that exhausts the intentions of the prophecy, the writer is referring to a typological fulfillment that must also be fulfilled literally. And we can talk about that question, but... The Old and New Covenants are applied to the church through this soteriological grid rather than through the political and physical and land aspects of the covenant. That is what he's saying is that the New Testament gets something else than the Jews with the land do. They both inherit some aspects of it. 
New Testament believers are recipients of the blessings of salvation that come through the new covenant. Genesis 12, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. See, But the new covenant will not be directly fulfilled until the nation of Israel has seen the promises of Jeremiah 31 and other passages literally and physically come to pass. Alexander is equally clear. Quote, when this passage is compared with the prophecies of Jeremiah 31, it becomes evident that the new covenant was instituted with the death of Christ on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. The full appropriation of the new covenant by the nation of Israel is still future, as argued by Jeremiah 31. Israel's restored covenant relationship with Yahweh at the end of days is part of the promised blessing of the covenant. Glad you see that. Where I'll let you look at it in a moment. Conclusion. <laughs> Conclusion. The dispensationalist is such because he has consistently practiced literal interpretation. The historic premillennialist is such because he has practiced different interpretation methods for different biblical passages. He sees a literal hermeneutic required in Revelation 20 that leads him to a premillennial view by the way, which the amillennialist says doesn't make sense. But practice symbolic and allegorical hermeneutics and other passages that lead him to a confusion of Israel and the church. Now, I've got time for questions. All right, anybody over here have any questions? No questions, all right. Anybody over here? Okay, Richard. Nobody? All right. <laughs> Hello, Dr. House. Um, I, you know what they call that now, the, the, the reading back into the Old Testament, because it's being taught, it was taught at a seminary I went to very strongly. It's called complementary hermeneutics. Yeah, yeah. And it, uh. Does that mean with an I or an E? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But it, you know, it, and it was just shoved down, down my throat. But how do you feel about, it's the same thing, isn't it? Complementary hermeneutics is a, it's just a covenant close. Well, see, the Old Testament is completed by the New, right? which means that you really can't deal with the Old Testament as having real significance until you've completed it with Christ. So everything is moving, and this is okay. Things are moving toward Christ, and I agree with that. But when they get to the New Testament and say, now what's really important is here, and all that other stuff doesn't really matter. That's really where they're at. When they mean completed or complementary in the sense of completed, they mean we've now reached what is really important. The other stuff was just sort of shadows of things to come, and once you get to Jesus, all the rest doesn't matter. That's a different view of the Bible than I have. Because if that were true, we really don't need the Old Testament. You really don't. And that's why I said, why would you want to do exegesis in the Old Testament to come to the end of all that work and find out it's irrelevant anyway? Because I've already got the answers in the New. Instead, dispensationalists, historically has said, no, that these things are actually all true happenings, 
historically of God's acts in history, which are important in themselves, revealing the nature of God, revealing His work with human beings, and with the fact of His plan of the kingdom. By the way, part of it is they don't understand the kingdom. But the, is that right, uh, Andy? I just want to be sure. Okay. So that, um, so that they don't understand the kingdom and God's movement, they don't see many of these features that are important to the nature of the Old Testament and the fact that these covenants are all building on each other ultimately to establish God's purposes in the future. But the idea that somehow the Old Testament authors had no true understanding of the text or the people who read them means all that's irrelevant. It really is. So completed hermeneutics, um, well, maybe that's a nice way to say it. Okay, I've got one here. Dr. House, I, uh, <clears throat> I really appreciate the uh, Nelson Study Bible. I know you, you uh, yeah. edited the, the New Testament. And, uh, and the, third uh, you know, the word studies <laughs> and in-depth articles, really, I appreciate it, um, especially for those of us who haven't gone to seminary, all the important stuff's in red, so that's good. Um, but I, I don't remember that. <laughs> I have a question about the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. Why in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 is it kind of discount that that talks about Satan? Oh, okay. I was okay. Another uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 38. Well, uh, Ezekiel 28. 28. Yeah, 28. You, um, of course, Ron Allen did that section so I I'll, I could let him speak for himself but the idea is that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 uh, presents ideas that seem to be uh, too many to be a reference to Satan but you also have in mind what seem to be actual kings of the time in other words you know uh, and so there's the question is that talking about the king of Babylon is this talking about and you know what is is that an actual statement about Satan, or is it really talking about the king with Satan behind the scenes? So, for example, you have in the biblical text, even in Daniel, statements about the you know the prince, and you find out the prince is, is some kind of angelic being behind the scenes. So it may be viewed in that way. I think that's part of the issue. Is that is that actually a full discussion? Because you have statements in those passages which seem to say things about the actual workings of a physical king, and I think that's part of the argument. Uh, I think that when you when you get to uh, uh, the statements of I think it's Ezekiel, where you you have the statement about uh, him uh, dwelling between the cherubim and such. Is that my right on that? Okay, I think I am. Uh, it's been a long time since I've looked at that passage, but uh, that sounds just a lot like something angelic and heavenly in nature, and seems to move beyond uh, what you find on the earth. But I think the answer may be in this. Uh, oftentimes the biblical text and prophecies intermix uh, information and you have to very carefully read it in which you have almost like a like a telescopic view you know like, I'm not saying it's future but you have this movement between that which is beyond the earth and that which is on the earth and it's sort of moving back and forth and maybe including both elements at the same time and so I can't speak to Ron I haven't read that for a while I can't speak to what he said on that, but uh, I suspect that's it where you have uh, both things true at the same time. So I would say probably in both of those you do have Satan in some sense and angelic beings, but you also have to recognize that you have your foot on the earth while you have a foot in heaven, so to speak. 
There's a PhD dissertation that was came out in the mid-90s, done at Andrews University, that actually destroys all those speculation. This is not talking about Satan. It's excellent, absolutely fabulous. I'll get you the, the text, yeah. but he goes through all the Canaanite myths that are usually alluded to that this is myths or this is that. He just demolishes, uh, you know, and he quotes, he got his PhD, Snaith, not, not Snaith, um, what? Yeah, Bertolucci, and he, but his reader was, um, was it Golden Gay was one of his readers? I mean, he had three or four readers. It was excellent. I'll get it for you, Wayne. It, it just demolishes. Right, I'm glad to look at it. Again, the, that's the other, not my area of real yeah. research. The other thing is Ron Allen is, has really drifted in some suspect areas. Like he's rejected a literal 24-hour consecutive day creation now and some other things that are really, in my view, very suspect. Just a quick question on what you just said about it possibly have meaning or possibly being true about both things, heaven and, and earth, if I was understanding that right. Can you help me understand the distinction between uh, that and having the, the scripture having two different meanings, which I think you've kind of definitively gone against now for several hours? Am I on now? Okay. Uh, I'm not saying it has two different meanings. Uh, what I'm saying is that... It, and, and I'm giving this as an option to talk about. And again, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. But uh, in looking at it hermeneutically, uh, I think some Jewish literature is such that they actually maneuver between two things. And you have to understand each thing with a literal standpoint of what it is. But it's not that it's a rejection of literal meaning and not even trying to do typological stuff, but that you sort of focus on one and focus on the other, and both are realities that they're dealing with. And in some respects, that's the Isaiah 7.14 passage in the midst of, you know, what's going on there with Meher Shalahazbaz and what's going on with Isaiah is that I think you have a, a prophetic look, but then you move back to the, to the current period and you move in anticipation of the current period back to the prophetic look. So it, it's, it's not as though you have a, a mixture in the sense of one is superimposed on the other. It's that they're residing side by side in the discussion. You understand what I'm saying? And, and I... Again, I we haven't got time to develop all that, but I think there may be something going on there, and and it's not the idea. It's just like in the New Testament that a lot of people get confused. I think Arnold Frukenbaum did a good job on this, where you have like the statement in Joel two over against Acts two, and you say what happened there. Well, Joel Joel only has one thing, right? Nothing that Joel talks about is fulfilled in Acts chapter two, except one thing. And the rest is not fulfilled, but mentioned, right? And on the other hand, the only thing that did occur on the day of Pentecost is never mentioned in Joel. And so you have the scripture sometimes using the fact that they emphasize aspects and maybe even side by side they do. So I don't know. I, that's about the best I can do right now. But I'll have to take a look at this other. I don't know. Yeah, there's a, there's a book Michael Rydelnik did called It's a Hebrew Bible Messianic. And he does an excellent job with Isaiah 7:14, and uh, also with the Joel 2 passage in there. In fact, so he, I think both the historical period of the time with Isaiah 7 and 8 there is occurring at the same time the prophet in the midst of that situation is also anticipating a future happening that becomes part of the prophetic passage. It's a historical prophetic relationship. You understand me? 
And I think that may be true of some of this other. Okay, I got a question here from Paul. I had, well, just a second. We had back here first. Is that okay? All right. Okay, in, uh, in understanding progressive revelation, what would you say that a Jew standing before the altar at the tabernacle understood? What was going on there? I mean, which Jew are you talking about? Well, Israelite. In Israel. I'm joking with you a little okay. bit. Because in, 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 the mind, in the minds, I mean, how do you know what was going on in the mind of any of them, but particularly without knowing which one? So what would an average Jew, as we use... Yeah, a Levitical priest, and which one of those? So the fact is, (laughs) I'm going with you. Um, You know, I think they understood uh, limitedly. I think they had a faint understanding of future. But remember I said you don't have to have all the details to have a viewpoint. I think they were anticipating a coming of Messiah. Uh, I think they understood the concept of redemption in the sense that the need to be redeemed. These were part of what they did, right? I think they understood the fact that their sins were being covered in anticipation of something that had to actually forgive them. See, that's, there's a difference in the two ideas. I think they had a lot of theological understanding of some of those matters. What did they understand? Of course, we're talking about what period we're talking about. We're talking about from the beginning and the tabernacle versus later on in the period of Isaiah and some of his prophecies and the minor prophets and so forth, you know, because we have progressive information coming in. So one here, maybe at the time they entered in the in the... Uh, maybe when they were in the desert in the tabernacle would have been a different idea 300 years later, let's say. But I, I think they understood basic theology that we see developed in the text. And I think they understood there was probably some kind of activity of God in the future to redeem them. So I think they had some... I don't know if they actually understood... I mean, we do all the time mention this, but I, I, I don't see any evidence that they actually believed Genesis 3.15 was a prophecy of Messiah. I don't know anywhere that's mentioned. You can inform me if it is. But we look at those things. But um, I think it actually was doing that, but it was so cryptic at that time. Would they understand what the lamb represented? I think they understood that you, in order to have forgiveness, you had to have purity. And I think they understood that as a, as a proper symbol of that purity, that God demanded holiness. Well, he kept saying it, and the lamb was offered specifically as a certain kind of lamb, it was so meticulously set forth, they understood that the purity before God was a, ne- was a necessary element of forgiveness. And they knew they couldn't accomplish it, but God accepted the lamb. And I think that could have given rise to them think that, that God might have a sense of redemption that would be similar to that in the future. But, you know, it's hard to know these things. You ask me for, I'm just saying maybe those things are all true. Okay, back here, I think. Yeah, again, in, in Rydelnik's book. Don't forget. Get, well, just a minute. In Rydelnik's book, his Hebrew Bible Messianic, he does an excellent job of, he, he takes Genesis 3.15 and shows, he does this intertextual development and how shows those themes of the serpent are picked up uh, later on in two or three different passages and traces that. It's really a, a, a very well done. Have you read that? No. Yeah, it's it's exceptionally but maybe detailed. Maybe so, but you know, I don't see anything clearly you need explicit. To, you need to you ought to read his arguments. I don't see any. I've read the Bible a couple of times. I I, I, know, I, I I know. I I I don't see anything explicit in there, and I no, don't. No, I, I, I didn't say and explicit. I know what intertextualism is. We don't I, need to go into I, that. I didn't say explicit. I said, but he does a really good job of developing that with, within a certain framework. And I encourage you. Was there another question over here? No, Will, you got one over there, and Will. Okay. Mom, yes. Uh, in Matthew, 
uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read that real quick. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Right. Now, I told, I'm right lockstep with you and I agree with everything you've said. When I, I just recently taught Hosea, and um, when I taught that, I believe when the prophet Hosea delivered that message, he was delivering a specific message to, to Israel at the time and the people of the time, and I don't think he saw that this was going to be fulfilled in this way. So this New Testament passage does tell us something about that verse that we would not have known by only looking. At the old. I don't think it changes the meaning of the original, t- original text in the Old Testament, but it does show us that that was actually prophetic when I doubt very seriously anybody took it that way at the time. Uh, well, you could read Arnold on that, and I, I tend to agree with him. I think that was a historical reference. It wasn't re- There's, it's, You have prophetic utterances that are not predictions. And I don't think that was a prophetic utterance that was a prediction per se. I know what At the saying. time, right, when Hosea said it. I, I but then this says it was actually fulfilled in, in this. I know. I, this. Yeah. 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 You have the terminology there, but how you use those particular Greek words, plerao, for example, there and what it says. It, I, I think what you have going on there is a, not a prediction from Hosea that was fulfilled in Christ, but a statement of God's prophetic movement that's found in the life of the, of the Jewish people with Israel as his son. And so it's not a prediction of Messiah per se. It's used by Matthew to connect to Hosea in which even as God brought his son out of Egypt, God has brought his son now out of Egypt kind of issue. And so I don't think it's a direct prediction like Isaiah 7.14. Okay, but I mean it, is, it certainly is an understanding of that phrase that previously would not have been seen in the text, right? This idea that is now being fulfilled once again in the in the well, yeah in, fulfilled in not in the field and see fulfilled is a word that's used in different ways. You have to go back and just take a look and do a concordance and run through all the words. You'll see what I'm talking about. The word is used sometimes to mean that which feels full, in the sense of that which is an epitome of. It's a it's a it's a clear representation of. You know what I'm saying? It's not saying this is an event that will occur. If fulfill means to feel full. And so I would say that what's happening there is that you have Isaiah saying that even as God brought out his son of Egypt, now the real son is coming out of Egypt, but it's not fulfilling a prediction. See, there are predictions and there are not predictions. Prophetic statements are of two different natures. And it's how Matthew is using that Old Testament passage to relate to truth. I think he's using a historical statement in which he finds a type of that in Christ. Yeah, he's not saying it's a, a, a... Prophecy that's being fulfilled. I don't think so. Right. Cliff, once again, read Rydelnik. He does a he does exactly what what Send me a Arnold, copy of it in the mail. No, no, no. No, no. He's exactly it's exactly what Wayne is saying. But he does the best job. In fact, when Arnold read it, after he'd already endorsed it, Arnold wrote he didn't read it for like you two years and then then Arnold wrote wrote Rydelnik a letter and said you did a better job explaining this than I have. From now on, I'm teaching it the way you've written it in the book. Oh. He really documented it. Well, you'll have and to give that to me. I'll read it. it. Yeah, you get, you get four different uses. I've taught this many times. Yeah. You, four different uses of the word uh, pleroma there for fulfilled, and only one is, is prediction with future fulfillment. Right. The other three are different. So we read a meaning into play and fulfillment 
that is not inherent as the semantic core semantic meaning of the word. And, and I say that in view of the fact that I actually took the time to look up every example of these things. And you Can see some one? that are predictions and some that are not. It's clear. So you have to be careful what... See, I don't... If, if it's a prediction, I'll go for it. But the point of it is you don't have to go that way because you have examples of it used both ways and Matthew is not doing it. And certain sense of prediction, other times not. Yeah. Just a real quick comment. Um, Charlie Dyer's article in Issues and Dispensationalism is very helpful on Hosea 11.1 and it goes along with what you're saying. Good. All right. Well, thanks, Wayne.